Genesis chapter number 15, beginning in verse number 1, After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Verse 6 is the most important moment in Abram's life. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now notice verse 17, one of the most mysterious verses in the Word of God. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Would you pray with me this evening? Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word and use it in a mighty way in our hearts. Teach us, Lord, we need to be taught. And Father, I pray that you would apply these truths in our lives in such a way that would draw us closer to you. I thank you that you've met with us already today. Lord, I thank you for the wonderful message we heard this morning, for the burden of this dear missionary brother that was presented to our church. Help us, Lord, and give us guidance as we seek opportunities to honor you in our missions program. And Lord, I just pray that tonight we would meet with you in a very particular way. Lord, accept your Holy Spirit. Reveal to us the meaning of these verses. We'll not understand them. But God, I believe you're able and I believe you have a desire for your people to understand your word. 
So, Father, we just pray that You would illuminate our hearts, that we might behold wondrous things out of Your law and open our eyes that we might do so. Father, we love You. We thank You for all that You have done, that You will do. And we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Boy, as I read Genesis chapter number 15, there's a lot that could be said that I won't say tonight. There's a lot of different angles and ways that you can examine Genesis chapter number 15. We find that uh, Abraham's faith is taken to a new plane and a new level. In fact, we find that Abraham begins to uh, understand what faith really means. And he only understands faith as it really is after he has put his faith, his saving faith, in God to save him. The Bible says it's counted unto him for righteousness. If we could use this terminology, I'd use it in this place to say it was in Genesis chapter 15 that Abram got saved, if that, if that terminology is appropriate. I know there's a lot of particulars about salvation in the Old Testament. I understand, though, it's the same Lord and the same salvation, same faith and same sacrifice that had to be believed on. I, I understand, too, that uh, there's a lot of differences because of dispensational differences. Uh, but if we were to pick a place in Abram's life where we said that he became a child of God, it would be Genesis chapter number 15. If we were to pick a place that we were to say, even though a man can't be born again except by the Spirit of God, but if we were to use that language or use the terminology converted, we would probably use it about Genesis chapter number 15. I've entitled the message tonight, Part 5 in the Life of Abraham, Faith Deepening or Faith Deepened. Because we find that for the first time, Abraham begins to understand his faith. Now, let me just put it this way. How many of you got saved at a fairly young age? Do you, do you remember getting saved at a fairly young age? I did. I was 10 years old. And as a young boy, I got saved. But I'm going to be honest with you. There's a lot that I didn't understand about what happened. I put in my childlike faith in the everlasting arms of the great God of heaven based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I knew I was a sinner on my way to hell, and I knew that if God didn't forgive me of my sins, if Jesus didn't come into my heart, I knew I was destined and damned to hell. There was a lot I didn't understand, though. But I know that as I've grown in the Lord and as I've studied my Bible, it amazes me all that God did in that instantaneous moment. When I look at the way that He sanctified me and He justified me and He reconciled me and He redeemed me and He adopted me and I look at all the things that God did in my life and I begin to understand faith a little better. We find that Abraham encounters much the same experience. He begins to understand the dynamics of faith, uh, the problems that faith may pose, and he begins to understand what it really means to place your faith in something. I've structured the message tonight. I want to give you five points, but the first four I'm not going to say a whole lot about. Uh, they're just going to be signs along the road that we're going to touch on until we get to our location. And in that fifth point, I want to talk a little bit about that uh, smoking furnace and burning lamp and the significance of it. As we read this passage, you'll find there are some interesting first things mentioned in this passage. The Bible tells us in verse number 1, notice it again with me, After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, as you read that passage, it may just seem like flowery, beautiful language to you. 
You may sit there and think to yourself, oh, well, that's wonderful to know that the Lord is our shield from our enemies. And that's wonderful to know that the Lord is our reward and we find everything we could desire in Him. But I want you to stop for a moment and put yourself in Abram's shoes. See, Abram had just come back from a battle. He had just come back from fighting. He had just come back from seeing people slain on the battlefield. He had just come back from having swords swung at his head and arrows shot at his heart. He had just come back from a dangerous situation. He had come back and the Lord tells him, you know, Abram, I'm your shield. Well, you're out on the field of battle. It wasn't your dexterity or your skills in warfare that protected you. Abram, I'm your shield. And you say, well, that's great. What about his reward? Well, don't forget that in chapter number 14, when the king of Sodom came out to meet Abram, he said, Abram, I want you to keep all of the spoils from battle. And all I ask is that you release the people to me and let them go to their own homes. But Abram, everything that you took in the battle, that all belongs to you. What was Abram's answer? He said, I have lifted mine hand to heaven. I will not take uh, from a thread to a shoe latchet from mine hand, lest thou shouldest say that I have made Abram rich. See, Abram had just turned down who knows how many riches. We have no way of knowing. Uh, it, it was enough that the entire army of these four kings had carried it away as, uh, as loot and as trophy and as bounty from these battles. And probably not just when they took the five cities there in the Vale of Siddim, but probably as they had pillaged all through the countryside, they had these great treasures that Abram had brought back with them. No doubt Abram would have never had to worry about financial things again. And yet because of honor and because of his faith he had put in God, he turned every bit of it down. And God looks at Abram and says, you know, Abram, I'm your reward. You see, what we begin to understand in this passage, first off, is the source of Abram's faith. God tells Abram, I'm the Lord God. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. I've been working and moving in your life. And faith and this element of faith and this walk of faith that you're experiencing, ignoring the natural inclinations of what would be prudent and what would be wise, and yet following the revelation of God, this whole life that is new to you, Abram. He's saying, I'm the source of that. It's not just a matter of uh, being a moral person and a spiritual person. True biblical faith finds as its source and fountain the person of Almighty God. Anybody that pretends to have faith without Scripture to back up uh, the context of their faith, it's nothing but delusion. We see this today a lot in the uh, health and wealth uh, preaching and the health and wealth uh, false gospels and prophecies and things of that nature. And uh, what we might call name it and claim it. And I've given this example time and time and time again uh, that I can name something and I can claim something, but that doesn't mean a thing. I mean, I can sit here in this pulpit and I can name and name and name a a brand new house or a brand new truck or a brand new boat and I can claim and claim and claim and claim it and that's not going to put one in my driveway. And you might say, but preacher, what if you really believe? Well, where do I get the faith to believe? The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith is not trying to superimpose our own will upon the divine will. Uh, Faith is allowing the divine will to be superimposed on our will. It's looking at God's Word and saying, Lord, I believe You can keep Your promise. For the first time in the Word of God, the term, the Word of the Lord is used. It's not used anywhere else. 
And we find that it is a personified statement. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, the Bible says the Word of the Lord appeared unto him, and then it speaks of the Word of of the Lord as a person. Now, you believe what you want about this, but as we go down the list of what we might call Christophanies or Theophanies, Old Testament appearances of Jesus Christ, we find time and time again the Word of the Lord appearing to somebody and speaking to somebody. Now, neighbor, you believe what you want about it, but I know who the Word of the Lord is, don't you? The Bible said that the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And you can believe whatever you want, but I believe when the Word of the Lord appeared unto Abram, I believe it was the living Word appearing unto Abram. It's the first time that this phrase, the Word of the Lord, is ever used in all of the Word of God. And it's interesting that Abram has lived by faith heretofore, and yet this phrase has not been used. God's been speaking to him, and time and time again, the Bible says the Lord appeared to him, and the Lord came unto him. But now Abram begins to understand that the source of his faith is the promise of God. The reason he won that battle is because the Lord is his shield. The reason that he had uh, the integrity to turn down the offer of the king of Sodom is because the Lord is his reward. And now Abram is beginning to understand what faith really is. Faith is clinging hard to the promises of God. Now you say, but I thought the Bible said that if we ask anything in Jesus' name, we'll have it. The Bible does say that. But let me tell you something. Jesus' name is not a magical phrase. It's not open sesame. There's plenty of people that use the phrase in Jesus' name when they pray that aren't praying no more in Jesus' name than if they were given Santa Claus a Christmas list. The truth of the matter is this. When you're praying in someone's name, let me give you a short example that I've given before, but bear with me. If I was to... uh, uh, Let's say we lived in times when kings still reigned readily and a king was to send me upon a message and he was to send me out with this royal decree and I was to take it to someone of prominence and someone of importance. And I get to this other king and I'm carrying this letter with me and here I'm just a regular peasant, just somebody not worth anything, just like Mephibosheth said, just a dead dog as I. And I show up and I say, uh, your royalty, I've got a message for you. And he might look at me and say, why should I listen to you? And I can say it's important, but that doesn't mean anything. And I can say it's vital to your kingdom or to your security, and that don't mean a thing. But now if I say I'm coming in the name of my king, you see, I'm not bearing my wishes, I'm bearing his wishes in his name. I'm not bearing my desires, I'm bearing his desires in his name. There's a lot of weight to a name, you know it. The Bible says there's none other name given among men uh, under heaven, given among men, whereby you must be saved. The Bible says that one of these days every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. They're going to bow at the mention of that name. That name is significant. And true biblical faith in praying in Jesus' name is not trying to superimpose your will on the divine will. It's not saying, this is what I want, and so God, you have to give it to me. But what it's saying is, God, what do you want? And give me the want to want what you want me to have. That's what it is. The Bible teaches very clearly that praying in Jesus' name means taking upon us the desires and wishes of Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, how do you pray in Jesus' name? Well, I want to give you a couple things very quickly. First off, pray for His revealed will. You say, but preacher, why would I need to pray for His revealed will? Uh, Prayer is the means of God's sovereignty and providence. 
I don't understand everything about prayer. I don't understand how we have a sovereign God that's in control of everything, and yet prayer can intercede and shake heaven and shake earth. But I do know this, God has commanded us to pray, and it's through prayer that His sovereignty and providence is exercised in this world. And so we're commanded to pray for things that are within His revealed will. Things that the Bible teaches clearly. What is the Bible? What was the pattern given to us by our Lord? He said, lead us not into temptation. Now, why would we believe the Lord would lead us into temptation? We know His will is not that we would give in to temptation. And so we pray for His revealed will in a matter. So we ought to pray for His revealed will. And you say, secondly, uh, any desires that you have personally, it's not wrong to pray for them. It's not wrong at all. In fact, God begs us to pray for them. But pray for them with your heart submitted to the divine will. Pray for them understanding that no matter what you think, God's will is really what's best for your life. We see the source of his faith. I want to go on a little further. We see in verse number 2 through 4. Now, read it with me silently as I read aloud. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. I want to pause for a moment and say that every promise that God had made to Abraham heretofore, had been a promise that, while though not plausible, was still possible. It was always something. He promised that He would give him uh, some type of seed, but that seed could have been someone born in his house, just as Abram alludes to, that he would have an heir from his house. God has promised him the land, and certainly it would be uh, very, very improbable that he could occupy that land, but it's still humanly possible. But I want you to notice the supernatural nature of faith. Listen to what God says to him. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, speaking of Eliezer, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. We find for the first time that God makes a promise to Abraham that is completely and utterly impossible. It'll take a supernatural act of God to accomplish this feat. Abram's an old man and Sarah's an old woman. She's past childbearing age. It is impossible that they would have a child. But what God begins to reveal to Abraham about faith is that faith has the means of doing things that twist the very fabric of nature. You see, the truth of the matter is this. Uh, faith is greater than the laws of this world. It was faith by which the laws of this world were formed. The Bible says uh, we know, uh, by faith we know that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. We accept that by faith. And we know that when God spoke, He was speaking something into existence from nothing. He was speaking invisible things into existence. And we accept that by faith. Faith is something that predates the laws of this world. And we have the ability to see God do things mightier than this world could ever reckon through faith. And time and time and time and time again in the Word of God, we see God take impossible situations and use them for His glory and for His honor. You, know, you say, how, how great is faith? Faith is great enough to stop the sun. Faith is great enough to destroy armies. 
Faith is great enough to intercede and interpose upon the very laws of nature. And what he's beginning to show Abram is this very simple truth. The Bible teaches us it in Matthew. Christ was speaking and he said, With men uh, it may not be possible, but with God all things are possible. You say, what's the significance of that? It tells me something. And I know this is not the sweet and sappy answer that a preacher with a better haircut than me and nicer teeth would tell you on TV. The fact that faith can do the impossible does not tell me that I am unstoppable. The fact that faith can do the impossible does not tell me that I will never have trial, that I will never have tribulation. But the fact that faith does things which is impossible tells me that the things that occur in my life occur not because it is out of the realm of God's control. They occur not because it is out of the realm to which faith can reach, but it tells me that the things that take place in my life occur because of sheer divine providence. That's why they take place. I understand this truth. When you go through a difficulty, when you go through a trial, you know and you understand that God could have averted that difficulty any time that He chose. And it leaves you with nothing but the very heartbeat of God as your comfort and as your confidence. I want to speak to you about something. Most of you know about it anyway, but back last January, me and my wife, we, we lost a child. And uh, that was one of the hardest things that we've been through, probably the hardest thing she's ever been through. And uh, I won't go into all the difficulties of it. If you've ever had that happen, you know what that's like. But when we lost that child, naturally there's questions and there's difficulties and there's mystery to it. You don't understand it. One of the great comforts to me is to know this, that at any moment God could have healed the body of that child if He had chose to do so. At any moment God could have delivered that child if He had chose so. At any moment, God could have completely alternated and reversed our circumstances if He had chose so. So I'm left with what? I'm left with the result as the choice of the divine heartbeat of God. I understand that what happened, happened because it was what God wanted to happen and it's what's best for my life, for my wife's life, my family's life. Whatever you're going through, you lose people in your life. We all do. And it's hard sometimes to reckon why it would happen in the way that it happens. Why you would go through the things that you go through. Understand that nothing is too great for God. So whatever takes place must be within the realm of God's providence. We see in this passage the supernatural nature of faith. But look at verse number 5 with me. We find the spirituality of faith. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. We find for the first time in the narrative of Abram's life, God referring not to the natural seed of Abram, but to the spiritual seed of Abram. When you study the life of Abram, you'll find that two analogies are given concerning the progeny and the, and the descendants of Abram. Uh, there's times when God would speak to Abram and say uh, that your seed will be as the dust of the earth. And that's speaking of the Jews as an earthly and physical people. 
But there was times just like this first occurrence that it takes place when he would take him and have him look towards heaven and he would say, if you can count the stars, see if you can count them, your seed is going to be as the, as the stars in the heaven. And it's speaking of a heavenly people. That distinction is important. It'll clear up some of your theology. Uh, Brother Dale read from Romans chapter 9 this morning and he stopped short of what I'm going to read, but I'm going to read it to you. In Romans 9 verses 3 through 8, the Bible says, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Now notice this. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now you say, are you telling me that a person, when the Bible is speaking of the Jewish people, it's speaking of a spiritualized body? No, not entirely. Because the promises that God gave to the Jewish people, they're an earthly people with earthly promises. But we find that these promises also extend further than earthly promises. And we find that the Bible speaks of Abram's descendants as children of promise and children of faith. And we find that uh, those of us that have accepted Christ by faith are part of Abram's seed. Now, not his seed according to the flesh. I'm, I'm not Jewish, not to my knowledge anyways. And, and just because I'm saved doesn't mean I'm a Jew. And if I was lost, I wouldn't be a Jew. I, I'm never going to be a Jew because I'm not a Jew. But spiritually, I'm a child of faith and a child of promise. And in that sense, I'm part of the seed of Abram. Now you say, what's the significance? We find that God takes Abram's faith from a physical and a temporal level to a spiritual and an eternal level. And it begins to make Abram understand that faith is not merely given that we might trudge through this physical realm, but that we might sit together with Jesus Christ in heavenly places. Faith is given not just uh, for the perseverance of the saint on this earth, but for the advancement of his spiritual walk. And we need to understand that if we're going to live and walk the Christian life, it's going to take faith. It takes faith to meet your bills sometimes. I've been there before, and I'm sure you have too. But let me tell you something, it takes faith to maintain your prayer life. It takes faith sometimes to see God intervene and and touch a person's body and heal them. I've seen God do that. But let me tell you something, it takes faith to be a soul winner too. What we do in this life and in this world concerning temporal matters is the least least of our concerns. Faith is given that we might spiritually grow closer to God. I want to give you a third thing or a fourth thing, or I don't know where I'm at anyway. <laughs> Look at verse number 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. We find the saving power of faith. Abram understands now that faith is not merely the means to a greater moral plane. It's not merely the means of following God. But he understands that faith is the means of being justified in the eyes of God. The Bible says he believed on the Lord. And I can't explain everything about that. The Bible says there's none other name. And I believe there's none other name. 
Uh, the Bible says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And I believe by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. We know that the law which came over 400 years after the promise cannot disannul the promise. That's what the book of Galatians teaches us clearly. There's a lot I don't understand, but I do understand this. Abram, when he was saved, he was saved by putting his faith in God. The Bible tells us that the gospel is preached before unto Abram. and uh, The instance of that, it speaks of in Hebrews chapter number 6, is whenever God makes this statement uh, that uh, in, in thee and in thy seed shall all the families and all the nations of the earth be blessed. And it's speaking of uh, not the seeds, that's what the Bible says, you know, not seeds as of many, but seed as of one. It's speaking of the coming Messiah. But we understand now that faith is the means for Abram to have a relationship with God. It is absolutely necessary for him to have righteousness imputed and counted to him. We see the saving power of faith. I want to dwell on this last one for a few moments and then we'll close. Some of the most mysterious verses in all of the Word of God, and I promise you I will not do them justice if, if that's the proper terminology as I try to preach from them because there's so much to be said about them. The Bible gives us an interesting account. The Lord promised Abram, I'm going to give your seed this land to inherit it. And Abram asked God a question, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Now, I want you to mark first off that Abram did not ask for a covenant. He asked for a sign. And he says, how can I know, God, that I'll inherit this land? Or let me go a step further and say it in a little plainer language. Abram says, God, how do I know I can trust you? How do I know I can believe you? How do I know that you're going to do what you said you're going to do? So God speaks to Abram and He commands him to do this, to take a heifer and to take a goat and to take a ram, uh, each of them that are three years old, and commands him to take a turtle dove and a pigeon. And Abram enters into what we might call a covenant scenario. You see, when a covenant was made typically in Bible times, the way it would normally be made is uh, there would be a sacrifice that would be made, and that sacrifice would be cut in twain, and the pieces would be set over against each other, and the people that were making the covenant would pass in between these two pieces, confirming this covenant. In preparation for that, God tells Abram to take these pieces and to lay them against each other. And uh, God gives him no further instruction. And the Bible tells us that Abram was driving the, the fowls away from the carcass and he waited and waited and waited. In fact, two days this interaction has taken place. On the uh, first night, the Bible tells us that the Lord had him look up to the stars of heaven. And now, as the sun's setting on this second evening, he's driving away the, carca- the animals, the fowls from the carcasses. The Bible says a deep sleep and a horror of great darkness fell over Abram and God began to speak to him and speak to him about the things that the children of Israel would endure uh, in their captivity during Egypt and how that God would deliver them from them. And the Bible says after the Lord reveals these things to him that Abram looks up and he sees a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passing in between those two sides of the sacrifice. Now you might say, preacher, what does it all mean? And there's a lot of different ways you could look at it. Certainly you could uh, view this as God speaking of the, the trial and tribulation that the nation of Israel would go through. And certainly they were led through the midst of two places of death 
by a smoking furnace and a burning lamp, a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. And certainly I'm sure there's some truth to that. We could say that in many ways it could be showing us what God would do to intervene for them on behalf on behalf of them whenever the uh, Pharaoh and his men were chasing them. And the Bible says that whenever they were uh, had the Red Sea on one side, that's death, you know. And they had Pharaoh's men on the other side, you know, that's death. The Bible says that uh, that pillar of smoke sat between the two of them and God through that occasion gave deliverance to the children of Israel passing through the Red Sea, which certainly is a picture of salvation in many ways. Uh, it would picture that deliverance. And I believe there's some truth to that. But I want to give you a third thing very quickly. And what I believe about this passage, one of the things I believe about it is I've studied it and tried to understand it. I, I, when I study, I try to take a passage apart, if you will, piece by piece and understand it uh, in a synthetic manner and then understand it in an analytical manner. Try to understand it uh, in the minute and try to understand it in, in the magnitude of it as well. And as I read this passage, I thought to myself, what a curious assembly of animals for sacrifice. Why a heifer of three years old? Why a goat of three years old? Why a ram of three years old? Or why a turtle dove? And why a pigeon? If you study anything about Old Testament law, there's two things you're going to recognize immediately. One of them is this, that that encompasses all the animals used in a blood sacrifice in the Old Testament. The second thing you're going to recognize is this, that the age of those animals is wrong. The Bible always commanded that uh, a lamb or a goat or whatever have you would be one year old when it was sacrificed. But the Bible tells us that each of these was to be three years old. You say, what's the significance of it? I'll tell you what I believe. I believe we see the law in its entirety and in its perfection broken. I believe that these animals represent every sacrifice that was to be made and I believe they represent it in its maturity and its perfection. And God tells Abraham to take, cut him in twain. Notice the Bible says he divided not the birds, because in Levitical law they were commanded not to divide the birds. And so two birds are given and one on either side. And so we see the entirety of the law, but we notice that it's, it's broken. We find a second thing in this passage. We see the execution of the lawbreaker. The Bible says that a horror of great... Darkness fell upon Abram. I believe that pictures death, physical death and spiritual death. The Bible says that our old man is crucified with Christ. It's interesting to note as you read this passage, five animals were given. Me and Ralph, we bannered back and forth about this, about whether the number five represents grace or the number five represents death. And, and uh, I believe that it represents grace, and he re believes it represents death. And I was talking to my father-in-law about it one day, and he said, you know, death always precedes grace. The truth is, the number five represents both things in the Word of God. Because you'll never have grace without there being death beforehand. It's interesting to note that there were five animals that were sacrificed. It took the death of those five animals. But we find something picturesque of Abram's death. I want you to notice a third thing, and it's all going to come together in a minute. You just hang with me. We see not only the entirety of the law presented and broken. We not only see the execution of the lawbreaker, we see Abram pictured as being put to death and put to sleep. 
but we find the intercession of the Lord. You say, what is the greatest covenant someone could ever make? A covenant that God makes with Himself. You see, really what a covenant that God makes with Himself is, is a promise. This covenant would have typically been made between two parties, but a covenant is only as good as the willingness of the people and the wherewithal of the people involved in it to keep that covenant. I entered into a covenant with my wife whenever we got married. I stood at a marriage altar. I made vows to her. And it's interesting, it was at an altar that we did that, a place of sacrifice. And I stood and I promised my wife that I'd love her in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer. She's starting to rethink that richer or for poorer now. But I made all these promises to her. Let me ask you something. Is marriage an ironclad thing in this world we live in, though? No, the divorce rate is over half. It means over half the people that get married are getting divorced. People don't always keep their promises. Abram looks at God and says, God, how can I be sure you're going to keep your promise? We find the security of his faith. What God does is God has Abram do his part in the sacrifice. You know what Abram did? Abram took a broken law and offered it up to the Lord. Let me tell you what happens when a sinner gets saved. When he quits trying to keep the law, recognizes he's broken it, and there's not a thing he can do about it. When a sinner quits trying to save himself, that's when he gets saved. So we see Abram offer up this broken law. But we find that for God to intervene, Abram had to be put to death. Whenever you get saved, your old man is crucified with Christ. What happens when you get saved is you say, God, I've broken your law. I cannot keep it. I cannot save myself. But Lord, I'm willing to sacrifice myself to you. I'm willing to give my everything to you. Lord, I'm willing to quit trying to save myself. And I'm willing to let you save me. We see the execution of the the lawbreaker. But we find that in the midst of this broken law, we find that God in His presence comes through in a smoking furnace that denotes affliction and suffering. A furnace always denotes affliction in the Word of God. And a burning lamp that always denotes illumination in the Word of God. The Bible says, "Make uh, Thy word shall be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What does the Bible say? The law came by Moses. Finish it for me. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace can't happen without death. Grace can't happen without sacrifice. And truth can only be accepted upon the premise of grace because the truth is we've all broken the truth. We find that what God did was God went upon Abram's behalf. Put him to sleep. Put him to death. Went upon Abram's behalf and said, I'll go through. And Abram, I'll make a promise that you can't keep. Let me tell you why I have assurance of my salvation. Because it's not my salvation. It's His salvation. Let me tell you why I believe that God is never going to fail me. It's not because I don't fail Him. It's because He doesn't fail Himself. And He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Let me tell you where faith finds its sure footing is in understanding that God is an immutable God. He doesn't change. He doesn't fail. He doesn't falter. We have this alluded to in Hebrews chapter number 6, and I'll read this to you and make a few 
comments and then I'm going to close. The Bible says, For men verily swear by the greater. In other words, if a person's going to swear, they don't swear by themselves, but something greater, something that they value greater. In other words, you hear people say, Well, I, I swear on you know my child or my mother or whatever it might be, even though the Bible commands us not to do so. People do that, and they do it because of the value that's vested in those people that they love. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel. And we might put it this way, if you're not familiar with that word, the unshakableness of His counsel. The, the unfailingness of His counsel. The immutability of His counsel. Confirm, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hopes set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Let me tell you, the greatest way to have assurance of your salvation is to understand that if you meant business with God and you truly accepted Christ, if you, if, if you were serious when you accepted Him, and if you meant business, to understand that it's not yours to keep that salvation. Faith gets us to God. Grace gets us to heaven. We accept Him by faith. But it's the grace of God that keeps us. It's the power of God that keeps us. The Bible says that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. The Bible says, No man shall pluck them out of my Father's hand. We find the security of His faith. Let me tell you something. If you've put your faith in God, and you're trusting Him over a matter that you believe His will to be clear upon, then I want to give you a promise that God will not fail you. He's made a promise He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's made a promise He will not let you fail or fall. He's made a promise He's with you all of the way. We find that God made this oath and this confirmation in relation to the taking of the land by the children of Israel. And I believe that's what it was in relation to. But we find as an element that is faith is given a footing by understanding that the reason we have confidence in God is because He cannot lie. For trusting His Word, His unchangeable Word, they can try to change it here, but it's forever settled in heaven. They can do their best to try to destroy it, but it's preserved from this evil generation, the unshakable, unchangeable Word of God. If that is where you have vested and placed your faith, then I want to make you a promise. God won't fail you any sooner than He'll fail Himself. God, If God was to fail you, the entire world would unravel. You say, what do you mean, preacher? The world was framed by the Word of God. Why's up, up, and down, down? Because God said it's so. If God didn't keep His Word, up wouldn't be up anymore. Down wouldn't be down anymore. The stars wouldn't hang in the heavens. The earth wouldn't spin in space. All of creation would unravel sooner than God would break a promise that He's made to you and that He's made to me.